Don't we have a great praise team in this place? <laughs> Nurtures our soul. Wow. Well, and I hope you understood that that wasn't Terry singing. That was the Spirit speaking through her. I don't think those were words written down anywhere. And so I think in some ways Jesus has already just spoken today. Everything I'll say today is an echo of what you've just heard. Come to me, he says. Jesus says, come to me. Trust that I'm all that you need. And, and when we really let that settle and claim our souls, it frees us. It frees us. There's nothing in this world that can tie us down. Every blessing that's ours we can hold loosely when he's all we need. Well, that's a message. Y'all ready to go home? <laughs> well, that's where we're going to go. I, I, I enjoyed my little staycation. And uh, while I was on staycation, I was watching by live stream each Sunday and uh, I feel a little pressure today to live up to the preaching of the last three weeks. Uh, wasn't Jeff and Cole a, a fantastic blessing? Uh, it's so thrilling for me to be a part of a team that gives me strength that way. Um, just really enjoyed their messages. And while, while I was on staycation, I read a, a book that I highly recommend to you. In fact, almost everything I'll say to you today is stolen from this book. It just had that kind of impression on me. It's by John Eldridge, one of my favorite authors, and it's called Resilient. Resilient, and it's a book, I think, uh, that's especially timely. Resilient, restoring your soul in these turbulent times. Any, anybody could use a little restoration, a little fresh strength, uh, a second wind, uh, John Eldridge will help you discover it there because he takes you to the source, and that's Jesus. So that's the question before us today. Is your soul thirsty? If it is, I think you're probably in good company. In 2021, they called it the Great Resignation. People in percentages and with a momentum that no year has ever known, people just quit work. They just quit. Doctors left the office. Lawyers didn't show up. They just retired. Some of them at 45 years of age. I mean, it was unprecedented. People just walked away. The great resignation of 2021, they're calling it. Some of us may feel just plain tapped out. And uh, have you ever felt the pressure before you were going on a vacation and you knew that somehow your plans were not going to restore you? I'm the only one that ever feels that way. Well, I, truth of the matter, I, I didn't really have many plans. But before I went on vacation, I was pretty well tapped out. And then maybe many of you can feel that way from time to time. You're just tapped out. You're tired of pressing on. And, and maybe this desert season of COVID deprivation, I would call it. It's really been a desert season. 
And John says, I love the, the phrase he gives to it. He calls it longing for Eden. Longing for Eden. Just wanting things to be good again. <laughs> does that resonate in your soul the way it does mine? Longing for Eden. He says it's, a, it's, it's kind of the way of the Christian all along. I mean, we, we, we know that this place is not our home, and there's this homesickness for the way God intended things from the beginning. And we know someday he's going to fully deliver on that when we see Jesus face to face. And the kingdom of heaven comes down to earth and establishes itself in this earth. We're not just going to heaven. You realize heaven's coming to earth according to God's plan, right? All, all that's in our future. And so it's natural for us all the time to have this kind of uh, low-grade longing for home, for Eden. <laughs> but you put us through a, a COVID few years, and all of a sudden that desperate longing starts pressing itself upward. You know what I'm talking about? Kind of like... Uh, uh, a beach ball being held farther and farther underwater in the pool, it is going to come up. You know what I'm talking about? The, just this, this yearning for, for life to be good again, to have things to celebrate, to, to savor the day, to savor life. I, I don't know. That resonates with me. Anybody here? Some have said that human beings are more like camels than horses. You watch a horse get tired, and there are signs, and you know it needs to be watered, and it needs to be rested. But camels, <laughs> camels just go on and on, just kind of slogging through the desert. They just keep going, just keep going. They don't go very fast, but they just keep on going and keep on going. And you never see it coming until finally they're at the end of their energy, and they just fall over dead. Is that what the great resignation was about? People that were usually resilient just finally hit their wall? Have you ever felt that maybe somewhere out there you've got that same kind of wall and maybe it's a little close for comfort? Well, if that's the case, I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. I think not just to those then, but to us now in Luke I'm sorry, John chapter 7, verse 37. And I want to read it to you, but before I do, this, this is not John 4 where Jesus says to the woman at the well, oh, if you knew the water that I had, you would have asked me for a drink. And I would have given you this living water. Not the water that you have to come back again and again and again, but living water within you that wells up into eternal life. Don't you wish that you were sometimes that person by that well and Jesus had said that to you? Well, folks, he did. Here in John chapter 7, verse 37, one of the most beautiful words in all of the Scripture shows up. Whosoever. Don't you love that word? For God so loved the world that whosoever. Whosoever. Can you say me too? That's, a, that's what whosoever means. That, that includes you too. And to us whosoevers, he says this in John 37. Now the last day, now on the last day, the day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. He wanted everyone to hear it. 
If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But he spoke this of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. How could the Spirit come in its fullness until we had seen who that Spirit was, because he's just like Jesus? We'd recognize that Spirit once Jesus had come and spiritually prepared our hearts in this world for the Holy Spirit to come, and that Holy Spirit is what takes up residence in us whenever we ask Jesus into our heart. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but the Holy Spirit is his alter ego, his another just like me, Jesus said, that takes up residence in our hearts. The the Holy Spirit is the spigot in us that lets us, when we're tapped out, tap in. To living water. You with me? This morning, I, I want to invite you to get tapped in. Now, when Jesus says this, he says it, at, uh, did you notice in verse 37 that it was at a particular place and at a particular time? And I think Jesus' timing, he was always so good with this, the timing stuff. He, and he's also good with, with timing in our lives. He seems to know when we're going to be most desperate for a drink and always be there for us. Amen. You know, and, and, and this is a special moment, I think, when Jesus says this. He, it couldn't have been any more dramatic. This is during the biggest feast of the year. You know, the, uh, the Hebrews were commanded by God to party. They really were. Festivals punctuated their year. Huge festivals. Everybody would get together, you know, and they'd toss camel shoes, I guess. I, I don't know, but it was a huge gathering. And there in Jerusalem, everybody within 15 miles of the city, every adult male within 15 miles was required to be there. It was compulsory. And th- th- there were three great feasts, Passover, as you know, and Pentecost, which came a little later. And those, I think, were usually in the spring. And then in the fall was the big one. In the fall was the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Feasts. In the fall was the feast after all of the harvests had been brought in. So in that time of plenty, you would have, you would have uh, the feast of booths. Feast of, it, was, it was Thanksgiving on steroids, okay? If you get the feel of after the harvest, everybody gets together, and they're commanded to enjoy and to celebrate life with one another and life with God. And during the Feast of Booze, every morning, a procession of priests would go to the Pool of Siloam and take a golden goblet, and uh, not goblet, a golden pitcher, and dip it in the water and then process up the hill to uh, the temple. And outside at the altar, the priests would... Uh, pour a libation, an offering of the water upon the, the, the altar and, and, and bless it. And it was commonly understood that that water was also a, an asking for the next year's rains so that it would be as plentiful as this year. And, and they, would, they would take that water from the pool of Siloam 
It's really a spring. Okay, I, I, I don't want you to miss this. Desert experiences were what they were celebrating. The, the Feast of Booths was remembering the time that, that Israel lived in tents, right? And Booths, out in the desert, it commemorates the journey, the God that brings us out of things, that brings us out of Egypt, that brings us out of slavery, out of sin. We have a God who brings us out. Isn't that cool? But not only that, they were celebrating the God that brings us through he took them 40 years through the desert, satisfying their every need. One of the kind of snapshot moments of that is when Moses, in the midst of that desert experience, when they're all grumbling and they're all dying of thirst, he taps a rock and water springs out. You know what they call water that's not left over after a rain and just gathered into cisterns because it happened to rain, but that water that springs from the earth and doesn't stop flowing, that it has an eternal flow about it. You know what they call that? Artesian wells, that's what we call them. But they, in the scripture, they call it living water. Okay? Now, get this. The booths... You could, if you were a rich dude, you couldn't like go out and, and, get, and build an extra special booth. Every, all the children of Israel left their homes or went up on their rooftops and pitched a tent for seven or eight days. Can you imagine a festival like this? Would the kids love this or what? And, and you couldn't, you couldn't, uh, you, you could put uh, uh, thatching over it, you know. To, to give you a little break from the sun, but, but it was required that you leave enough gaps in the thatching so at night when you're sitting there with your kids that you could look up and you could actually see the stars. So it could be remembered that once Israel was this dependent on God, living by tents and by his very providence day by day with manna, with water, with quail, with all the ways that he blessed his people to come through a desert experience that should have done them in. But for 40 years, they were resilient. For 40 years, neither their clothes wore out nor their sandals had to be changed. That was his level of providence as a God who not only brings us out, but a God who brings us through. And so don't you build a booth. If you're one of those rich dudes, you know, you, you build a booth and it's, it's got, a, you know, a fancy roof to it and it's there year round and you've got your grill out there. And, and no, no, no. The, the, these, these are temporary things. You know why? Because the desert is always temporary. The desert with God's people is never an end destination. The desert is always a passing through place. And folks, that is crucial for you to get. Because every survivor, if they know rescue is coming in three days, or if they know rescue is coming in three months, they can tough through the desert. But if you tell that survivor that there is no hope and there's no rescue coming, he might not make it through the night. We serve a God who brings us out, who sees us through, and who brings us in to the promised land. What, what an incredible thing to be celebrating, and what an incredible... Now, it says it wasn't just 
during the feast, which was eight days long at Jesus' time, but it was on the last day, the biggest day, the finale, the hoopla of, of, of this incredible celebration with millions of people running around and following these priests from the Pool of Siloam up to the altar, and they'd wave their palm branches in celebration for what God has done and what God's going to do and that God's in their midst. And as they would pour out the libation, they would, they would wave their palm branches and thanks giving to God. But on the last day, the biggest day, the most important day of the feast, they would, remembering God's deliverance in the desert time, take the water, and when they got to the altar, they would walk around it seven times. Does that sound familiar? Where did that happen before? Jericho. It happened at the place that Israel had no reasonable right to think that they were going to get through. Here they are, a bunch of dudes with tents and sticks, and they didn't even use the sticks. All they did was walk around Jerusalem three times and sing songs and blow horns. Seriously, read it. Seven times they were commanded to go around Jerusalem, and on the seventh lap, they all blew their horns, and the walls of Jericho, 50 feet high, 20 feet wide, crumbled to the ground. And Jericho was so terrified that these little tent dwellers took the city. Jericho was directly in the way. It was like the cork on the bottle of the promised land. <laughs> you couldn't get there without going through Jericho. And it was an impenetrable city. And yet God, on the seventh, so they would walk around that altar with, with their water, and the priest would be dancing, and everybody, can you hear it? And then, and then and they're, they're dancing around the altar. And then finally, finally, there's this pouring out of the water on the altar. And everybody goes, yay! Like a, like, like a, like a Super Bowl Sunday crowd. And then you hear it from outside Jerusalem as the sound comes down. And Jesus says, let any man who is thirsty come to me. And drink. Are you thirsty? You know, if, if we're in a, ta a time where, where COVID has made us ripe for any new promise of, of, of just some relief, you know, if, if the comfort culture of America, if any hard time now, we, we are so fat and comfy that any difficult time is likely to push our citizenry over the cliff of whatever it takes to just make things better again. Give us that. It's a dangerous place to be, friends. You can fall for anything under circumstances like this. The question is, when you're thirsty, where do you take that thirst? Where do you take that thirst? Now, I'm as guilty as anybody. Sometimes when my soul is thirsty, I don't go pick up my Bible. I go and I put in a season four of Frasier. Anybody else? I'm the only unspiritual one in the group. You know, or, or, or I'll go see a movie or, you know, I'll try to take my vegan wife to dinner. That's harder than it sounds, folks. 
You know what I'm saying? And all those things are great things. But they're not the river of life. All good gifts come down from the Father. All those gifts He means to to shower on our lives, to make that part of His refreshing. But don't confuse the finite gifts from the infinite giver. See? Because those things are empty cisterns. They may feed you and restore you for a moment, but they will not restore your life. And it doesn't matter if you have a staycation or you've gone to one of those places where God's creation is luxurious and and you're looking on a lagoon uh, straight from from your hut on the beach. I'm just imagining my my imaginary beautiful place. And and there's there's mountains on the other sides and they're still snow-capped even though you're enjoying the tropical warmth. I don't don't know if this place even exists, but you know know what I'm talking about? And uh, those, those are all wonderful. But listen, when you go to those kind of places and you see that kind of beauty and it nurtures your soul, you know what's nurturing your soul it's the river of life that created all that for you to enjoy don't confuse the gifts (laughs) with the river of life that is the giver and it doesn't matter if you can go to those places on vacation or if you if you if you got a staycation planned like i did it doesn't matter because friends you can get to this river from either location right He's always with us, but so much of the time, we, we die of thirst with the canteen of the Holy Spirit on our hip. Where do you take your thirst? Where do we take it now? Where are you taking your thirst? You know, you know how I first dealt with my thirst. It was quite frustrating because I never got around to doing it, but sometimes it's good for me when, when I've, as a pastor, I do a lot of kind of, kind of mental workouts, but, but I don't always do a lot of physical workouts. And, and so on vacation, it's therapeutic for me to pick up a paintbrush or, or to crank up the lawnmower or something like that and just do something that leaves a trail behind that I can see. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? And I had one of those things planned. It turned out I never got around to it. And where, do, where do you take your thirst? It's okay to remodel the kitchen, but that won't restore your soul. It's okay to escape work for a while. That's a part of the renewing. That's what the Sabbath was about. But we can just as easily, when we're this thirsty... Just develop a new addiction. When your soul is that thirsty, where do you take it? And when you're that thirsty and you're that tired, it's easy to fall into all kinds of lesser than ways of restoring yourself. Isn't that true? It's easy to just go pop a top. In fact, uh, Carl Jung, a guy I studied in college, said this, I came to discover because of John, uh, every addiction is a misguided prayer. Wow. Where do you take your thirst? 
Jesus said, come to me. Come to me. It's, a, it's always a temptation to seize restoration on our own and just try, try to bypass involving God. But every time we leave Jesus out of the equation, we might get some rest, but I don't know if we're really restored. Our resilience certainly isn't not, it's not what it could be. So let's let that longing for Eden that's rising in our souls around the world right now, let's let it drive us to the real river. Jesus talked about these times, and I think these are the end times that we're in. Anybody else echo that feeling right now? And he, he called it in Matthew 24.10 and in 2 Thessalonians 2, through, uh, the great falling away. You know what that word is in the Greek? Apostata, apostasi. Apostate. In the end, there will be this cooling of hearts towards God, this great falling away, this disillusionment with God. Has he left us behind? This great disappointment that somehow turns into this distance in our own hearts. Jesus warned us about it. And friends, we're in that season. And he told us that this kind of deception will come upon the whole earth, and especially it will even tempt those who are the people of God to, to, to fall away during this time. And I want to be prepared not to be one of those that in these times loses my orientation and, and, and falls away from Jesus. I want to be a person that trains myself, trains myself to find the river of life. Are these really the last days? People could argue about that. But did you know that in 2015, there was this great convocation of mission sending agencies in the United States. They all came together for this great conference, and it was published and reported at that particular missions conference that their goal was within grasp. You know, you know the goal. Uh, go, therefore, and make disciples of all peoples. And Jesus said that the gospel would be preached until all the nations, and then the end shall come, right? And they predicted at this conference in 2015, by 2022, now they didn't see COVID coming, but they predicted by 2022, the last people groups that were yet to have the gospel printed in their name and preached in their culture would be reached by 2022. Folks, could it be that we're that close? And if we are, and I think we are, then we have to take seriously Jesus' warnings about what may come at this time. In Luke 21, 29 through 36, he asked us as believers to pray for strength. Look over in Luke. Luke chapter 21. Can I read it to you? Luke chapter 21 Let me start with verse 34. I think we've got a slide about this. Yeah, I'm going to read a little more than is printed there. I'll read all of it here. Luke 21, 36, um, 34, reads this way. Be on guard. 
that your hearts may not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. Did Jesus visit America? I, I, and that day come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. All the earth. He says it twice. But keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. No, no he, he doesn't say this. It's sometimes important to note what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say so that you'll have the strength to stand before your enemies. What does he say? So that you'll have the strength to stand before me. To stand before the Son of Man. Now that paints the picture a little different. Because we get our strength looking at his joy, looking at his eyes. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It's his uh, unshakability that settles and brings peace to our own souls when we face uh, uncertain and difficult times. But he says there in that passage, ask. Ask for strength. Now, folks, I don't think this is a strength that because we're spiritual enough, we, we work it up. He says, ask for strength because this is a strength that comes from outside of us. It comes from him. From tapping into his presence, for, for reading his word, for connecting by the Holy Spirit to a God that can actually nurture our souls. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about a head trip. I'm talking about something that our head is so convinced of that it nourishes our heart. It changes our feeling. It redirects our moods. In Daniel 10, 17 through 19, Daniel describes a moment like that. He's visited uh, by this heavenly messenger who some believe is kind of a theophany. It's, it's, it's Jesus pre-New Testament visiting him. And here it is in uh, Daniel 7, verse 17. 10, 17, okay, because that didn't look right on the page at all. Okay. Here it is. Listen to how he describes it. I love this. For how can such a servant, my Lord, talk with such as my Lord? He's been visited by this heavenly being. And he says, as for me, there remains just now no strength in me. Nor has any breath been left in me. <laughs> Daniel's done. He's finished. He's too tired to, to, to draw another breath. Or maybe it's in the presence of this magnificent one that, that he is now speechless, breathless, strengthless. He, he, he falls to his knees. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. And he said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he spoke this to me, I received strength and imparted strength by the Spirit. How can we tap into that? Maybe 2 Chronicles 16.9 gives us, 
gives us a, a hint. Second Chronicles 69 says this, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Now, folks, I, I, think, I think this is the challenge in the years that are coming before us. It's going to be a matter of having that kind of single-heartedness for our Lord refined in our souls. And I don't know that any of us are at the end of that process yet. And I don't know about you, but there's days when I feel not very refined. Where I'm embarrassed about how unspiritual I am. There's days, like I said, I turn on Frazier rather than opening the Bible. What, what, is it, what is with that? I think he's really funny, but I think it's going to happen both on a cultural level, this picking what waters our souls, picking what is our Savior in this world. I think it's going to happen on a cultural level, but even more than that, it's going to happen on an individual level, personally. We, we, we've got to strengthen ourselves to resist the falling aways of this time, but it'll also happen on a corporate, cultural kind of level. I don't know if you've read the book. Well, I won't even get to that. Let's, let's just talk historically for a second. I think that's a little more comfortable than talking about the moment. Because as soon as I start talking about the moment, I'll step on someone's favorite political leader and uh, it'll get interesting in here. On a cultural scale, th this will play out. Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come and many will be deceived. Many will come. He was talking about false messiahs, those that, that had a, a new Eden for us to offer us and so forth. And folks, again and again in history, we've seen this scheme of the devil come and go so many times. And in history, it's clear, but in the moment, it's always fuzzy. Hitler, do you remember how that started? He had a utopian vision of a better world. So much so that all of Germany and much of the world, even outside of Germany, saw his path to a, a superhuman race as being something that would deliver us from the sufferings of the age. And therefore, since this was one of those plans that didn't have God in it, then you could no longer value people by the standards of God, recognize them as the image of God, treat them with that kind of respect. And if that's the case, if that's your plan, if you've got a plan that secures the future and God ain't a part of it, everything's going to get warped. People become disposable. Disabled people were, were done away with. Jews, he saw as disposable. They, 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 they were done away with. Christians. Many Christians were also in those death camps. And I think Jews and Christians suffered there, not because of any rational reason for it, really. I think it was spiritual. I think Satan was having a heyday. He was having a little dance destroying God's people. Now, Cole, you can't really teach that in history class at Jinx this week, but I think that's true. Hitler's 
plan started out as a great new plan for this world, Chairman Mao. Do you know what his plan was called? The Great Leap Forward in China. Does that sound familiar? The Great Leap Forward, but it was a plan without God where human beings took total control of their circumstances, left God out of it. Chairman Mao was supposed to be the, the champion of the working class, the champion of justice, and the champion of order. He would be prosperity to China. And the Rolling Stones and John Lennon and the feminist movement of the time embraced him as a new savior. But what became of Chairman Mao in China? 80 million people. People were massacred. Wrap your 80 million people. Any plan without the river of life in it is going to have a parched earth history to tell. It was tried in Hawaii. I didn't even know about this. Did any of you? This, this was the brother of Elizabeth Taylor. He, he, he was like 1960s super hippie on steroids, right? So, so he goes to Kauai. We've got some folks from Hawaii. But Kauai, one of the islands out there, and it's such a beautiful tropical place that he decided that they would go out there and create little hippie heaven, right? And uh, it was called Taylor Camp. Elizabeth Taylor's brother. It's called Taylor Camp, you know? And it was in such an ideal Eden, another false Eden being a, they, they didn't wear clothes. So it was a, a nudist community. They didn't have to work because, you know, papaya and, and avocados are just falling from the trees. So no work's necessary, right? He didn't have to... Uh, uh, no work, you know, you, you don't, they had tree houses, which was fine, because you just walk down to the beach and uh, romp around in the water whenever you want. You know, what, what's, a, what's a little drug abuse and immorality among friends? You know, it's kind of, the, kind of the way it was sold. But not too long after that, they got in trouble with the law. They were completely unsubmissible to any kind of authority. They had problems with the natives, and eventually Camp Taylor burned to the ground at the hands of those who opposed them. Right now, there's an actual book out called The Great Reset. I try to read not only the stuff of the Lord, but try to read what I think Satan's up to. The Great Reset. It's a plan without God. Sounds good. I read it cover to cover. It's very convincing. They have a plan by which all the uh, unpredictabilities of this world are going to be taken away because there are going to be those who are elite and smarter than we are that can rule us all. Now, you, you won't need any possessions. You won't have any possessions because they'll own everything. They'll manage it for you. Oh carefree life. Doesn't that sound great? Except, except you don't own any of it. They're already talking about America no longer needs individually owned cars. Well, what's the point? Wouldn't it be great? You never have to change your oil again. Of course, you never have a car again. Could you imagine all 250 of us 
just last night, calling Uber at the same time. Right now, and I think it's in Phoenix, Arizona, there's a whole fleet of, of cars that are unmanned taking over the taxi business. Right now, it's happening, folks. The Great Reset, it's another plan that without God, where certain people or elites that rule all the rest of us, th think about it. You won't ever have to pay for a meal as long as you're okay with insect burgers and insect porridge. Mass-produced. Life, life can be predictable. Well, life in prisons is always predictable. John says, folks, we've got to remember that any plan without God is a dangerous plan. And it doesn't matter if it's a plan for a nation or a plan for the world or a plan for your next vacation or your plan for a relationship or your plan for a career. Leave God out of it and the well that supplies. You can't do without that. Jesus in Luke 17, when he's talking about one of these end times, I'm going to have to close with this. Right, right in the middle of his dissertation where he's, where he's encouraging us to be alert and to be sober and to not be taken in by these times, to, to so prepare our own soul that we do not fall away, he, there's this one verse. That's a whole verse. Luke 17, 32. Remember Lot's wife. Okay, I said it would play out on a cultural basis. It will also play out on, in the individual heart. Remember Lot's wife. Now that, that, That's a picture there of Lot and his daughters guided by the angels. They're leaving Sodom as it's being destroyed. And you remember, Lot's wife turns back towards Sodom. And her hands are out, not in prayer. I think her hands are out in longing. Because whatever the uncertain future holds for us, what's familiar in the past is always something that we want to return to. And so Lot's wife is so, she's been living in Sodom, which for all the horrible things that were happening there was also a, a pretty swank place to be living. It was comfortable. They had all kinds of amenities. Now how could you live in a place that has so much horribly demonically going on in it and yet still be heart drawn to it because there's there's so much comfort there's so many amenities there's so many wonderful things about america i think in order to be prepared for a challenging future we have to day by day week by week prepare our hearts to hold everything in this world loosen our hands as a gift from God to be enjoyed in that moment, but not anything that then becomes a shackle that becomes something that claims us. Remember Lot's wife. What, one more story, and I'll, I'll close with this. Did you hear, in 1947, in 1947, there was a, a sociologist, his name was Thor. I think he was Swedish. I'm not sure of this. 1947. He believed that, unlike most people believed at the time, that the Polynesian islands were not settled from Asia to the east, 
but were actually settled from Peru to the west. And he came up with this theory because the natural currents and winds from Peru would tend to sweep you towards the Persian, uh, the Polynesian islands. Did I say Persian? Polynesian islands in the South Pacific. And so in order to prove his theory, he and a bunch of buddies put together this raft that was what the Polynesians at that time that they think Polynesia was settled would have put together. It's basically logs strewn together by, by uh, reeds and, and rope. And they trusted themselves to the Pacific Ocean in this thing. And for 101 days, they sailed west. 101 days. Now, they had a sail on there, obviously. But it was basically a primitive hut on a log raft. And it took them 101 days to reach the first Polynesian island that they came to. And this adventure story has actually been written up by Thor, who led the expedition. And on the 101st day, they finally caught view of the island, Eden. There it was. There it was. And they had survived 101 days at sea. They ate the fish they caught. They boiled salt water and dr drank the water to sustain themselves. I can't imagine being 101 days stuck on a raft in the Pacific Ocean. But they did whatever was necessary to make that trip. And then within sight of the island, 100 yards from their destination, they hit a reef. They hit a reef and th the, the raft got caught high-centered on that reef, and the waves were just building up in huge, huge columns of water behind them, and it would come crashing down on their raft, and it was thrashing the raft against this razor-sharp reef, and the raft was coming apart, and Thor said that he grabbed a hold of some rope and a log as that as that raft continued to turn and try to flip and start to come apart. And he said he prayed to God for a strength beyond himself just to be able to hold on. And that's what he did. And he held on and he held, all of a sudden he was upside down in the water, didn't know if he was going to come back up. The raft was completely demolished. And in little pieces, all of the men and different pieces of the raft drifted towards home. And he thought it was ironic that for such a challenging trip, the most challenging moment was the last hundred yards. Are you ready for that moment? Having done all to stand, will we stand? Will you have the strength like David did in the Old Testament when everything was against him and the Scripture says... And David strengthened himself in the Lord. Amen. The church may not always be gathering in order to sing the songs. You may not be able to call a Christian friend and get a return call. Will you be able in that moment to gather strength from the source water? From the river of life? My friends, you will if you've been going to that well.
all along. If you know where to find it, how to tap into it. And so I'm asking you this morning, where do you take your thirst? Where do you take your thirst? The well himself cries out to you in this moment. It's you, puts your name on it. You're one of those whosoevers. Let him who thirsts come to me. Come to me. In this moment, now, at this altar, come to me. In all those moments where the longing for Edom and his Eden is welling up inside of you and your, your thirst for things to just be good again is all that you can see and all that you can feel. Let me invite you to turn to the one, the only one, that's really able to satisfy that, both on a cultural level and on a personal level. He's calling you. Come to me. All who are thirsty, come to me all who are weary. I will give you rest. For my burden is light. My yoke fits. Come to me. This morning, if you'd come to Christ, or if you're tired of being on a raft alone in this world and you're ready to join a church, Walk with us through these times. We need you. Maybe you need us. You come to this altar this morning and join our church. But whether you stay in that seat or you end up here, friends, tap that river. If you're tapped out right now, you can tap in. Let's stand and sing.